The full program from Umbrella 360 has already landed, featuring over 170 speakers, over 80 sessions, and 14 masterclasses. With such an impressive program, you cannot afford to miss this year's conference. Check out all the sessions and lock in your attendance to Australia's leading media and marketing conference at mumbrella.com.au forward slash Umbrella 360. Welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Callum Jaspin, and today, as Disney announces bumper funding for Australian original content, is the country still an attractive production destination for global studios? You'll hear what other streaming players are doing here locally and how they're meeting investment quotas. You'll also hear from Green Senator Sarah Hansen Young as she joins the podcast to talk about the party's proposals in the media and comms regulation and reform space this election. We'll also wrap up our pre-election content with a look at what some of the other candidates and parties are pledging. Finally, an interview with UM CEO Anathea Rise, a year on from returning to Australia to take the helm at the Media Brands Agency. Joining me to discuss all of this... Welcome, Acting Deputy Editor, Emma Shepard. Hello, hello. And Reporter Khalil Welsh, welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Great to see you both in person this week. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming up. So just days after the election, media reform and policy has not quite been at the forefront of the national conversation dominated by climate and economic policy, as well as a focus on just who of the candidates seems like more likable of a figure. Our very own Khalil has put together a wrap of the major party and independent candidates' media and communications policies heading into Saturday's election. You can head to the website to see that full write-up. Prior to the recording, Khalil and I spoke with Green Senator Sarah Hansen-Young about the party's proposals come Saturday. And just for transparency in this one, we did approach Paul Fletcher and Michelle Rowland's offices for interviews as well. Here is that interview. Senator Sarah Hansen-Young, you're the Green spokesperson for quite a few remits, one of them being arts, media and communications. Um, I should say welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, so you, you led the Media Diversity Senate Inquiry last year as committee chair. One of your key policies come Saturdays to strengthen media diversity in Australia and protect Australia from what you call the Murdoch monopoly. Can you tell us a little bit about why this is, I guess, central to your um, policy proposals and how you aim to go about this? Look, we all know that the media concentration uh, of ownership in particular is an increasing problem here in Australia. We have one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world. Um, that, of course, is leading to less local stories, less local news coverage, less accountability uh, for governments uh, and corporations and agencies. And it it really means that uh, more and more stories are simply, and news is simply syndicated. So local communities are missing out on knowing what's going on in their community uh, and what uh, and, and how they can participate. There's been a lot of talk over this uh, election campaign around the integrity in politics, a debate around an anti-corruption commission. We obviously need to put one of those in place. Um, strengthening uh, and restoring trust in democracy and the democratic process, uh, trust in our public institutions. One of the key elements to fixing all of these things is making sure we have uh, news that is trustworthy, uh, diverse media landscape in Australia, a diversity of voices so that the community is, uh, feels that they can trust what they read and hear or watch, but also that they uh, they can hear themselves, that there, there is a diversity of voices in the news landscape. And um, I guess part of this also includes protecting the independence of our public service broadcasters. How do you think realistically we can see funding for both um, the ABC and SBS depoliticised? We need to have uh, the attacks on the public broadcasters, particularly the ABC, uh, stopped. Over the last uh, nine years of the coalition government, the ABC has been a punching bag. Almost, a, you know, it's become almost a a culture war uh, of those on the conservative uh, and the right wing. Uh, 
um, elements of, of the Liberal National Party. It's a rite of passage almost, it seems, uh, to beat up on the ABC uh, in order to, to get your brownie points inside the Liberal National Party. Um, it's just not on. The ABC provides a essential role uh, to strengthening our democracy, informing uh, the community and making sure there is a news service that is trusted. In times of uh, you know, emergency and uh, catastrophic events, it's the ABC that the community tune into. So we need to fund it properly. We need to restore uh, funding and drop all those cuts and threats that hang over the head of the ABC, and you do that. And the Greens are very, very um, clear about this, and this is something we'll be pushing uh, the next government. Greens, hopefully, uh, will be in the balance of power, at least in the Senate, after next Saturday, and we'll be pushing the next government to make sure uh, we have funding for the ABC uh, in a, in a five-year uh, cycle, so it's out of the election cycle. It doesn't get caught up in the politics, and that it is in law, legislated. So it's not at the whim of the minister of the day or politicians. Uh, I recently conducted uh, or commissioned a poll uh, here in my home state in South Australia that showed the vast majority of people uh, want the ABC to be independent of uh, politicians. They want their funding protected and they want appointments to boards, uh, to the ABC board, uh, out of the hands of, of the minister and the government of the day. It just doesn't make sense. You can't have an independent broadcaster, a public broadcaster, that is uh, constantly battling uh, threats and innuendo from the very same government that it's meant to rely on for funding. And we haven't seen too many um, major proposals for media policy and regulation from the other key parties. What else are the Greens proposing in order to strengthen or reform the media and communications sector? In particular, how would you go about giving ACMA teeth? Mm. Well, what we saw throughout the Senate inquiry uh, last year was um, that the current regulation of the media landscape and our media regulations are not fit for purpose. Uh, they're out of date, they haven't kept up with the times, and uh, they really don't work uh, to deliver uh, in the public interest. So we need a, uh, a an overhaul of media regulation in Australia. We need it to be, um, we need a regulator that is um, uh, one single regulator across different platforms. It's crazy that there is different rules and regulations based on whether you read your news on a hard copy newspaper, you listen to the radio or you listen to or you watch uh, subscription television um, or indeed uh, you're consuming, which most people do these days, your news online on a variety of different uh, social media platforms. Um, we need a one-size-fits-all regulator that is, uh, that is modern and fit for purpose. Um, and uh, ACMA, the media agency that's currently in charge of some of this regulation, has proven itself to be uh, pretty much a, 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 as limp as wet lettuce. It needs an overhaul. One single regulator with teeth uh, and uh, across the various platforms. And, Senator, you mentioned just before um, about, you know, potentially having that, uh, well, what it might look like post-Saturday. Um, potentially in the case that Labor, for example, is elected, um, are there any of their policies which you could see yourself, I guess, working together with Labor on or sort of common ground? Well, throughout the Senate inquiry uh, over the last um, 18 months or so, I was quite encouraged by... Um, uh, Labor's uh, approach on uh, recognising that there is um, a lack of media diversity, that we need a, uh, a a new set of regulations and a single one-stop shop regulator fit for purpose, fit for uh, the, the era we now all live in, which is dominated online as much as um, anywhere else. Um, I think there is some um, a good chance that with uh, a, a strong green voice in the Senate, 
if the Greens in the balance of power, that we can push uh, a new government uh, to deliver um, at least uh, some reform uh, over the next three years. And boy, don't we need it. I mean, one of the saddest things that I've experienced over the last few years working on these issues and talking to both experts and um, everyday Australians is just how disillusioned um, the people in the community are with the quality of news available in Australia. Uh, people over and over and over again say, look, I just don't trust the news anymore. I just don't believe what I hear or read uh, or see on the TV. And that is a tragic state of affairs. Uh, when we know uh, Australians want more accountability of government at all levels, we need good quality public interest journalism. It's a, it's a big part of dealing with the integrity in politics problem that we're all facing right now. And um, if, you, if you were to assess Paul Fletcher's record as communications minister on a scorecard, uh, what would that be? Oh, look, I think um, uh, the minister's been pretty much missing in action uh, throughout his time uh, in the hot seat. Um, he's done little to address media diversity and, and the, the crisis facing uh, local newsrooms uh, uh, in Australia. He's overseen uh, attack after attack after attack on our public broadcasters, the ABC. He's dropped the ball on other parts of uh, Australian content and creative uh, industries. He's let them um, go wanting in the midst of the pandemic. Um, of course, credit where credit's due, uh, he did, of course, um, uh, help uh, to bring in uh, the regulation of the big tech giants in relation to access to Australian news. Um, but if we hadn't been in there as the Greens, in there negotiating and making sure uh, we could fill the potholes, all of that money would have went to the Murdoch press and none of it would have went to small players or the ABC or SBS. Um, so, frankly... I'd give him, uh, you know, it's up there with a C minus. And just finally, the Greens have also announced policy to invest in local production, including a one billion Australian stories fund to increase the capacity of our local screen industry and increase local content quotas for streaming, video, and on-demand services. Yesterday, we saw Disney Plus commit to a new slate of local content commissions. Is this a step in the right direction? We need more uh, Australian-made content. Um, it, it's quite clear that unless we have a big investment and that there are incentives and there is regulation uh, to create uh, and support Australian-made uh, content, Australian stories uh, made for made by Australians for Australians uh, that can then uh, be exported to the rest of the world, uh, it's just not going to happen. Um, we can't afford to have this new, uh, these new platforms, these big uh, streaming giants just be self-regulated. Uh, it needs to be in law. And if they don't have a problem with creating Australian content, then they shouldn't have a problem with having it in law. Um, other parts of the world are, are putting these uh, requirements in place. The Greens want to see a 20% um, of revenue uh, raised in Australia by the streaming giants spent on uh, giving back to the Australian industry to make sure those Australian stories can be made. And if we don't do that, what we'll see is that in countries like Canada, in, uh, in Europe, uh, in South America, where they are putting their own regulations for local content in place, um, you'll see big companies like Netflix, uh, Disney, Amazon, others uh, spending all of their time uh, creating content for in those countries where they're required to and very little will be done here back home in Australia. Well, um, Senator Hanson-Young, we really appreciate you taking the time today. No worries. I, uh, I look forward to talking again uh, post-Saturday and, and uh, we'll see whether, you know, whether there's a change of government and where, where the, what the lie of the land is. Yeah. There's a lot of work to do. Definitely. Well, best of luck. So, Kalila, we sort of alluded to a few other parties' policy proposals there. Um, there isn't really that much radical going on in terms of a long-term vision. Uh, 
Can you give us an idea of some of the key policies, maybe starting with the coalition and the ALP? Yeah. So, Cal, as you kind of mentioned, there isn't too much radical going on. It's a little bit samey amongst the main players here. Um, We spoke to Senator Hanson Young earlier and the Greens definitely have the most robust uh, policy in terms of communications this election. The Coalition and the ALP have kind of gone out on similar lines. We haven't seen a big difference between their proposals. Uh, The biggest differentiator probably being the way they want to fund the national broadcasters. Um, The coalition have primarily, other than that, honed in on digital security with some fairly strong rhetoric, though, to be honest, little tangible policy proposals. It holds the line that it's stood up to the big tech um, players on the issues of data security and mis- and disinformation, but there's a pretty strong sentiment across the industry that the current level of regulation of digital platforms is pretty lacklustre. Um, the coalition says it would strengthen the powers of media authority ACMA if re-elected, but they haven't really provided any details on how that would be done. Online safety is another big one that they've kind of emphasised with significant funding having been allocated to e-safety, including $23 million to improve e-safety in schools, $10 million to improve reporting lines for online abuse, and about $36 million in funding to support women experiencing technology-facilitated abuse. When it comes to the ALP, aside from their fairly firm stance on the ABC, they've uh, delivered a stronger focus on media uh, diversity, obviously, than the coalition, and they've also... Um, made promises to help sustain the local media industry by revising anti-siphoning laws, um, basically to give free-to-air networks first pick important sports and cultural events and make Australian TV services more prominent on connected TV as well. Yeah, and we um, had a couple of absolute um, dinger quotes from the senator in that interview. One of them, she mentioned that it was uh, a rite of passage for some of those coalition MPs to kind of treat the ABC as a punching bag uh, you mentioned it there, Kalila. How, how do some of the proposals or policies change uh, directly involved with those public service broadcasters? Yeah, so like you just said, the coalition has had a fairly tenuous relationship with the ABC, long history of funding cuts and obviously the reluctance to appear on the national broadcaster with the PM having just made his first campaign appearance on the ABC earlier this week. Um, but they have followed suit with the other parties. So um, the Greens and the ALP have you know, promised uh, increased funding for the ABC and they've kind of followed along that suit earlier this year, promising to return the levels of funding to 2018 levels, um, committing $3.3 billion to the ABC and million to the SBS over the next three years. Probably the biggest difference here is that they want to keep it on that three-year election cycle funding cycle, I guess, Uh, whereas the ALP and also the Greens, as we heard earlier, um, have proposed moving to a five-year funding cycle, which I guess would serve the purpose of depoliticizing funding for the ABC. This is something that's also been supported by a lot of the prominent teal independents as well. Um, I did have a look through a lot of their policies and they kind of all lined up uh, along with what the Greens and, and the ALP proposed along that line. Moving along, coming up next, Disney Plus commits to Australian content. Will the other streamers follow? Uh, on Tuesday, global streamer Disney committed to producing a sleuth of Australian original content, including three scripted dramas, four documentary series, two lifestyle and two entertainment programs. Uh, moving along, Disney's shift in a focus to more adult-facing uh, content. M, what are the nuts and bolts of this uh, just briefly and more generally, why is it receiving a lot of attention? Yeah, I think the reason this has had so much attention is because of the sheer size of the investment that Walt Disney ANZ is putting down for these local productions, um, content in in particular for Disney+. Plus. As you said, there's 11 original local productions, which is great to see. And I also think that uh, whenever a company has more control over their content slate, it's always a positive for the company. Um, It means they're less reliant on, you know, content supply from overseas. 
Uh, it will also be available internationally on Disney Plus too. So that's something I know Screen Australia will be happy to see. Uh, you know, it means that SVOD platforms are really shifting the focus to local content helping the film industry here rather than focus its attention on those main overseas productions. Uh, and also just pushing the film industry here in Australia to really be shown on a world stage as well. Yeah, just before the podcast, I spoke to Hugh Marks, former Nine CEO and joint CEO of full service TV studio Dream Chaser. Um, and he was, we were kind of discussing that investment and sort of what we can see looking forward. He said that Disney's involvement is incredibly positive news for the industry in a whole and can only really be, be described as a big investment um, and uh, sort of suggested that it signals that Australia is kind of moving beyond being seen just as a location destination, which was sort of the way it was positioned during COVID when, you know, half of Hollywood pretty much moved over here from his initial kind of four weeks since Dream uh, Chaser has been launched. Um, he said that he's noticed there's a huge surge in demand for Australian stories, not only from streamers, but from also some international networks like AMC over in the States. But then the, one of the biggest challenges moving forward will be uh, maintaining the quality of that content that, that is being produced over here. And that was kind of made evident on just the first day of meetings with him and his co-CEO, Carl Fennessy. Uh, he said there was just huge demand. Um, I asked him briefly about Stan and about, I guess, the uniqueness of their position in the market being the only local player. Um, and he said that Stan remains to have that competitive advantage in that they can also utilize any content that they produce across their other platforms being Nine, Nine Now, and then obviously on Stan as well. Um, and suggested that they will continue to compete aggressively. Um, so I guess on that front, stand in a pretty good position. Um, so I guess on the back of that, more specifically on some of the players, uh, M, clearly you split your duties going out to some of the, the streamers in market. Uh, Killer, interested to quickly just hear about Netflix first of all, just because they've probably been in the headlines a bit most in recent months. They launched Byron Bays, which was sort of, their big flagship Australian original content two months ago, um, kind of led by um, their director of content, Q Min Lu's, uh, I guess, appointment. It was sort of her baby. Uh, it was kind of launched within quite a lot of controversy in terms of the local response to it during the floods. Probably not ideal for Netflix in terms of timing. Uh, you you asked Netflix about whether we will be seeing a follow-up season They've obviously had a lot of success in that format before. What, what, what do we hear back? To be honest, I don't think Netflix were fairly reluctant to comment on the show, on the success of the show. They did inform us that it was, I think it fell into the top 10 English-speaking programs on Netflix for Australia for the first two weeks. But that's all we really know from them. They're not really happy to comment on whether it will be making a return or how the other viewing, you know, how the viewing played out there. Yeah, so they didn't really comment on it. But um, they did inform us that they have a few other things in the works coming out. Primarily they are location-based. So, you know, they're American films that are being produced locally. So in that um, sense we have God's Favourite Idiot starring Melissa McCarthy, which I believe is out next month, Spiderhead starring Chris Hemsworth, um, out next month as well. There's a, um, a series uh, streaming now that is a local production starring Tony Collette and Bella Heathcote, Pieces of Her. And we'll also see um, a production of Boys Hollows Universe, which is going to be adapted into a TV series. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of what they are producing is really, you know, American cast, American talent and produced locally. Yeah, interesting because, you know, previously when we do see Netflix put out a show and it is, you know, vastly successful. They'll usually come up with some sort of figure on total hours watched or total viewers. Um, but I guess the suggestion that we haven't heard anything about season two getting greenlit or anything about that, maybe reading a little bit into the reviews, that'll be uh, interesting to see if they do double down on Byron Bay's. Um, M, did we hear any from the other, um, the other streamers as well? I know some of them can be a bit reserved sometimes in announcing? And if we did, do they have a similar strategy? Yeah, um, I spoke to Stan and Paramount Plus. And as you said, Stan is 
you know, a power force in this area. Uh, I did speak to the CEO, Martin Kugler, uh, I think in March, uh, that there would be doubling the local content on the platform. Um, usually they had about four to five local productions. They want He wants that to be 10 by the end of this year and then doubling that figure by the end of 2023. So that's 20 local productions for Stan. Uh, Paramount was the same, um, a sing- similar thing. They announced when Paramount Plus was launched in Australia, uh, at least nine Australian-made productions, um, you know, and also Paramount Plus has A-League. Uh, but just some of these pr- productions is uh, Five Bedrooms, More Than This, Spreadsheet, Six Festivals. So, you know, I feel like um, it was, wasn't really surprising that Disney Plus is kind of jumping on that local production bandwagon. Moving along, uh, coming up, you'll be hearing from UM CEO Anathea Rice. Anathea Rise, CEO of UM Australia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So uh, you have been in the role for just over a year now. Can um, you believe it? I know, it's been, it's flown by. Flown by, whirlwind. I think you kind of lined up at the same time as me starting, so yeah. it's a good bookmark. We can always, we, we'll <laughs> always know how long each other was in the role. Um, you kind of spoke, I guess, initially about uh, how easy the decision was to move across yeah. and maybe that was influenced by Mark Code giving you the call. Um, how, has, has, how has it been going? Has your, what's your assessment of the first year? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, look, it's been an astonishing year. It's, uh, it's not the year I expected. Uh, it, it's funny, when I was leaving the US, I was saying to uh, my friends and colleagues, you know, oh, it's an easy decision to go back because Australia, yes, Melbourne had, had uh, was, was sort of in and out and mostly in lockdown, but it felt at the time that Australia was doing um, this amazing job when it came to COVID and, uh, and, and things would be much freer. And of course, I came back ahead of my family and ended up um, in the huge lockdown in Sydney. Uh, and was was stuck up there, obviously unable to come back to Melbourne. And then my family got stuck in the US, which they didn't mind quite as much because the US had come yeah. out of lockdowns there. So for, on that side, really challenging year. And, and from the work side of things, I think that uh, w- we had a lot to deal with because when when COVID first hit, Everybody went into uh, that that sort of reaction mode. Nobody, client side, agency side, nobody knew what was happening. And so we were all reacting in the moment. So then by the time uh, the the sort of that second wave from Melburnians, I realised it was more like the sixth or seventh wave of lockdowns happened in June, sort of between June and, and November of last year. People were really fatigued. Yeah. Uh, I'd been very fortunate that before the June lockdown started, I'd actually been able to get into each of the markets. So I'd been into the offices of all the UMs around the country and met everyone, which was fantastic and such a privilege to have been able to do that before we all started going back to um, screen communication only. But that that second part of the year was really about ensuring that people felt as supported as they possibly yeah. could, uh, whether that was physical support in terms of, you know, trying to get people to do safe distance walks together so that, that people had sort of community for, for some people, including people like me, who didn't have community around them, making sure that people felt supported in the the processes that we had in place so that we we knew that, that, that people weren't working crazy hours, but that they also had the flexibility to deal with children who might have been home, family members who who needed to be cared for in the home, all of those sorts of things. And and frankly, that was the main priority, was first and foremost making sure the people that worked at UM had the support they needed, because in turn, that meant that they collectively were able to support our clients more. So it probably wasn't the year of um, enormous change that I thought might have happened when I when I came into the the new job. Instead, it was a year of real um, real hunkering down and making sure that people felt uh, felt that they we had their back and and we really did. And in turn, they had my back. And and it was um, it, it was a great way to get to know people and, and yeah. to really form um, a terrific relationship with with so many of the folks here at UM. And have you found that, I guess, having um, Cody working with you, someone that you've worked previously with, has helped, I guess, 
seed you in and, and and I know you've probably seen this year as sort of like a, a kind of opportunity to sort of dig your heels in and really get started. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Working with Cody's always a, a, a pleasure. He's uh, he's he's someone I can I consider him to be one of the best operators in the business in Australia and globally and um, feel really privileged to to get to work with him. He's also a really good counsel. I, I feel like he's the kind of person that I can talk to and um, and and he offered he, he gives me good advice because we're quite different you know we've got different points of view on things and um, and and he always gives me that other way of looking at things and thinking about things so it's yeah, wonderful to be back working with Cody again. And you, you, the role you moved back from, you were running all the West Coast for Cara? Or for running Denzel. Cara on the yeah. West Coast and then running and then, the Dentsu office. In, yeah. yeah, and yeah. you also had Chicago, Chicago Atlanta. Chicago, Atlanta, yeah. So four offices here must be a piece of cake. <laughs> Look, it's wonderful having the different offices and it's uh, it's it's great because we, we have um, – a, a nice sense of it's not rivalry, but there's a lovely sense of um, gentle competition between the officers and uh, how many people are filled in this survey and who's who's getting ahead on on um, on on that piece of training that that we might be doing. So, and each of the officers have uh, just a different a, a different style about them. So I I, I love working across them. It's um it, it's great fun. And I guess it's often said that um, maybe some trends or things that are happening over in the States or in the UK might have a bit of a lag period until they hit here or potentially vice versa. Do you think that there are maybe any stark differences that you've noticed in the year that you've come back or potentially any learnings that you brought back mm. that you've thought have worked out and being applied here? Mm, that's interesting. Stark differences. Not quite sure if there are stark differences, but certainly there are differences. One of the things that I was really uh, excited to um, to learn, because it's not my natural area of, of focus, when, when I was in the States, I was very, very involved in uh, understanding people-based data stacks and, and learning about the the value of those and 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 how um, how advantageous they can be when it comes to really understanding audiences and mm. and and then being able to connect to audiences in in a really meaningful and um, and specific way. So it was exciting for me when I came back here to to see where um, where media brands and IPG was in with 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 our data spine and our approach to data and and. I've been, uh, I feel really fortunate that I have a couple of years of, of learning in the States so that when I came back here, it, um, it's an area that I can I could get pretty quickly up to speed uh, on and, and, and working with the teams here because I do think it's it's an enormous advantage and I am incredibly impressed with the Axiom data stack and, and what that brings to us and to our clients. I think another area that, um, and this won't be, this won't sound like new news to, to people because it's it's often been said that Australians and, and New Zealanders are really popular in, in other markets uh, like the US because there's a, there's a real agility of thought and a real breadth of thought that tends to be trained into us in this market. And, and often it's because our client sizes uh, are just not as big. Um, yeah. a, a mid-level client in the states, a, a sort of lower to you know low mid-level client, would be 115 million, um, and, and that's that. That's all. You know, that's yeah. a lot of zeros. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it means that that, uh, that that the teams working on the client side tend to be bigger. They tend to be separated. So we had. For most of the clients that, that I worked on, there was a, a vastly different media team than a, than a creative team um, in at the client side, and, and they wouldn't necessarily communicate particularly well. So we, we ended up sort of operating in silos. So it was always great um, to when we did hire Aussies or Kiwis to, to see that sort of flexibility come to life. So I think we're really fortunate here in, in Australia and, and in New Zealand as well, where you where sometimes budgets or um, or size of teams means you can just get stuff done you, yeah. and you can be creative and you can come up with really clever ways of of solving problems that don't rely on huge budgets sometimes that huge budget can be a bit of a crutch that um, that stops that creativity and I guess just going back to the first part of your answer there 
what is, I guess, looking forward? Has there been anything that you've brought in where you've thought, this is what I want UN's data strategy to be moving forward? Or how, how is that going to change in the next year or so, which is obviously going to be quite a critical time for, for data and, and yeah, agencies? Absolutely. I think the way we use data needs to be um, needs to be enhancing. It needs to enable the relationship, the connectivity between clients and consumers to be more relevant, um, more in the right time and in the right format because we know that when, when you receive advertising or messaging that's relevant to you, that's giving you something that you, you want or you need or that is interesting to you, we're all up for it. Consumers yeah. don't mind advertising as long as it serves a purpose for them. So, so for us, it's about how do we use that data to really make sure that we're, we're connecting with people in ways that's going to be um, appropriate and interesting for them. I think it's also really interesting for clients when, and when clients look at the use of, of their data and what they know about their audiences and what it is that, that we can uh, add to that to, to make it a much more fuller, more robust and more rounded picture because the more you understand about people, the better you are able to serve yeah. them. And I think that that's critical. So we are um, we are obviously in the federal election period right now. And um, UM is the proud holder of the, Very proud. the federal election, sorry, the federal government account. Um, I'd be interested to get an insight into what that's like yeah. um, during a period like this, what goes on. And is it exciting? It's incredibly exciting. I mean, it's a, it, it is a huge... It's a huge um, point in time for the Australian population, let alone the team working on it uh, on the on the FedGov account. It, it, it's also um, it's not something that happens by accident. The team work really hard and uh, had done rehearsals and plans and put things in place to make sure that that everything went off seamlessly because it has to. It absolutely has to. This is an area where uh, the 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 freedom and fairness of the election is very much dependent on on these things happening in in mm -hmm. a way that's um in, in in a way that works the way it should. So for us, that means that in the immediately the election is called, we need to work with all of our media partners. There are over a hundred to immediately cease all advertising. Um, we have to check that, we have to verify that, make sure that that's all happening. Then there's um, other other campaigns that do have bipartisan support that then need to go back live. So, so you, you take them down and then you're putting other campaigns up live again. And some of those sorts of campaigns are things like um, Stop It at the Start, which is, of course, about... Um, stopping domestic domestic violence. Others are about the ongoing need to keep people getting vaccinations mm -hmm. and, and the importance of, of that there. Um, and then um, and Defence Force Recruiting, for example. So they're things that, that the teams feel really passionate about, the, the need to have those in the community. And so, um, uh, you know, that was a real driver for them to get uh, those back up again. I think at, at the same time, then you get instruction from the AEC to book the actual campaign around the enrolment process, how to vote, what people need to do. That's a really important civic duty. And I think that the teams find it um, something that they feel really proud to be a part of. In fact, the uh, the day that uh, on the Sunday when when the election was called, everybody hit the office and they were all wearing. We got T-shirts made that said "Just 20 to it." Um, so the the entire teams were all in the office with their you know 22 T-shirts on, feeling really energized and excited about the part that they were going to play in um, in the election process. And uh, and then it gets it's incredibly gratifying when you see. The results of, of your hard work and in this instance for example over 200,000 people signed up yeah. to um, to be on the uh, on the, the electoral most, ever, wasn't the it? most yeah. ever in one day and and that's that's fantastic that that means what what people are doing and, and what the teams were doing was was really working so they're going to some pretty tired people at the end yeah. the teams worked incredibly hard I'm so proud of what they put in but the 
the, the team that work on FedGov are really proud of the work that they do and the role that they play in um, making sure people in this country are educated and understand what's happening and, and, and are aware of their rights and their responsibilities. So will you be um, bookending it by volunteering at the, the polling booths in the I will be I will be voting and enjoying a democracy sausage. I tried to introduce democracy sausage to the US. Um, they Yeah, sausage sizzles are not such a thing no. there. Well, it seems like maybe democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll cut that. <laughs> um, so obviously, you know, government account, surprisingly fun to work on. Are there any, you know, you come back into this role and you've got a completely new client list to play with. Are there any that kind of shocked you when you started and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that? Like, to, to be honest, and this is um, government, Fed government. I, I know we've just spoken about that, yeah. but Fed government was the one that surprised me the most because I think in my mind I, um, I, I, I wasn't thinking about how broadly... Um, how broadly exciting it can be. It is an account that you can be targeting the entire population through census, for example, right down to a really, really, really targeted, very, very small and specific group of people where it's really important that a message is communicated to, to that group of people. You can be, some of the, the most creative work I've seen um, has been delivered for areas like defence force recruitment. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. Um, I think that there are other other clients that not necessarily surprise me, but, oh, cheapest I love Telco. And working with Optus is, is incredible because Optus has such a really clear vision of, of what they want to be and 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 that's wonderful as an agency partner because everything you do can be filtered alongside that uh that that yeah. vision um and and they do great work and then we do brilliant exciting work i've, I've worked um uh i've worked in the space of um of alcohol brands like lion uh, across my career as well and and again being able to connect with people and in, in really interesting ways like the, the team the collective agency village team that worked on the um the furfy truck stunt uh, yeah. just, you know amazing great fun so i think that there's there's a lot of a lot of enjoyment that comes from different elements of this industry that we're in and that's that's what i love about it the most and i think if i'm talking to either young people that are coming into this industry or even people who who are sort of mid-career and, and starting to think about is this the right industry for me I love to remind them of that breadth of of uh, challenges that you get faced with and that sometimes something can seem like it's a inverted commas not a particularly interesting category but actually what you can yeah. do in that space is, is really fascinating and I think that that's important because we we lose too many people from this industry and and I think in part it's because they don't they're not sometimes you get so caught up in the the low value work and the repetitive work and the sitting on and behind an excel spreadsheet work that that you don't see the the exciting the the really thoughtful the really connected with consumer insight work that we can be doing and that's that's where it gets exciting and we will get on to just that in just one second in particular. I just wanted to ask, you know, there was the um, there was the, the global realignment in, I think, December or November of Coca-Cola. What is the kind of, I guess, the material impact that has on an agency when something like that happens? But a client, I guess, you've worked with for so long walks out the door and there's maybe not really much you can do about it. Mm -hmm. Um, absolutely, and, and those sorts of global alignments happen and, and what I was at pains to talk to the team about is that, that the team did not lose that account. It was, um, it was not a result of, of work that they'd done. In fact, we, we still are winning awards for the amazing work we've done with Coke over, over the time that we've worked with them, and obviously in particular the last, um, the last year. Uh, and, it's it's never fun. Um, if you do work in this industry for a while, though, you will be on the the side that benefits from global realignments, and you will be on the side that yeah. that, that suffers from global realignments. Say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> and and look, it's always tough. Um, I think it's made tougher 
when you're in a position like we were with Coke, where the work we were doing together was was outstanding and, and the teams remain really proud of it. And that's the other thing is you, you can still remain proud of the work that you've done, even if you're no longer working with that client day to day. So I think that everybody um, in UM and across the, the team that worked on the account will remain proud of that work throughout their whole careers, as they well should. And as we know, it's this industry is an interesting one. Things things change, and um, and you never know what you might find yeah. and who you might be working with in the future. So you spoke just about before, you know, some of the maybe less exciting points in a in agency life mm-hmm. when you're sitting in front of Excel spreadsheets and so on and so forth. As a solution to that, Media Brands is this week. Um, by the way, this will be next week. So. Um, this week launched new automated transformation solution. So this is basically uh, automated service cutting out a lot of the sort of grunt hours that people have to do filling in numbers and spreadsheets so mm. they can go on with some of the more interesting things. Um, I guess start by telling us a little bit about mm. it, what the thought process behind it was and mm. I guess building on some of these issues that it might yeah, absolutely. It's an amazing process um, that the, the teams here at Media Brands have been working on for uh, well, close to two years now, and it has been live and, and, and in action for, for a little while now. And um, I think that when you look at technology and, and in this instance, automation to take away some of those uh, lower value repetitive tasks, it really does mean very specifically for the people inside the the business that that their workloads their their days are really significantly improved so we have a series of bots we we of course did a a a bot naming competition so we have some some really fun fun bots like trackzilla and um, r2 detail and uh, merry make good uh, among others and and what the bots do is is really take away that that the the data transposing and the data inputting that, that that's necessary and um, when you look on average there's around an eighty percent saving of time when the, the 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 bots have been since the bots have been implemented in, into those um, those tasks now for me technology is here to serve people that's that's the point of of this type of technology and. When we, and the reason for, for implementing it is that we, we haven't, this industry has not changed fundamentally for, for 20 plus years. So we're still doing the same level of, of detail that we were all that time ago. Yeah. And that's not very exciting. That's not really exciting for the, for the people that join this industry looking for the kind of, <coughs> excuse me, the kind of, um, engaging and thoughtful and creative thinking that, that we really can do. It, it's, it's funny, isn't it, when we, when we attract young people, if we go to universities or if we talk to people who are looking for their first jobs in this industry, the, the, what we want from them, and I've had plenty of these conversations, we want you to be creative, we want curious thinkers, we want someone who's looking to make a difference, and then we bring them in the office and we put them in front of an Excel spreadsheet and we say, could you please do this repetitive task for seven hours. Now, when you were, maybe when you were sitting in an office with a group of peers and there was there was buzz and you could go out and have a coffee or you could go out and have a, a, a bite or a drink after work, that was not, there was a little bit more of a, of a balance and people were like, oh, this isn't so much fun, but then I get all of this other social side. The last couple of years when people have been in their bedrooms or their lounge rooms without the catching up for the coffees and the sandwiches together and the, and the laughs in the office and only doing the repetitive work, yeah. it's just, that's not exciting. So we've taken it away and, and it, we've taken so much of it away. And really what that means is that our folks can use those great brains that we hired, that we wanted them to bring into our organisation, and they can use that to to be to be extracting insight and taking that insight and applying it to challenging problems with clients or challenging ways of, of using media in different ways. So it's just a, a much more engaging way for someone to begin their career in, in our industry. 
But I'd also say for the folks that are managing young people, it's a much, much more appealing conversation with the person you're managing if you're talking to them and training them about how to identify really interesting trends, what to do with that, how to read and interpret data rather than simply transposing or transcribing data. So I see this as an absolute benefit to people across the entire organisation. I mean, you would think at some point it's going to be more widely adopted if, if the technology is there and you clearly, you clearly got it. Do you think there will be maybe um, anyone of a, of a different generation who's gone through that who might be a bit bitter and think, well, I did the hard work. <laughs> You've got to do it as well. Oh, look. Oh, <laughs> so cynical. Um, I, think that, I think that there might be people that feel that way. But I think in general, uh, we all want the next generations, whether that's uh, work generations or, or, um, or you know, demographic generations, the next generations to, to have it better than we did. And, and I, I know that the excitement um, across the senior leadership team at UM and across our group directors and our directors, it's absolutely real and palpable because they, again, see that this is making... The, the folks that are coming and joining us, it's making their lives more yeah. interesting and more meaningful. And you know what happens when you've got an interesting and meaningful job? You stay there. Yeah. And we really want people to, to feel like they have longevity at UM, that they, they will continue to have um, a role and a place that is, that is growing and that they are getting broader experience and and learning more and more so no I think just in general people are pretty are pretty supportive of this even if they were the ones that spent all of those hours in front of an Excel. Yeah. and um, just finally you know the, it's obviously very exciting and um, taking it to clients are they excited by it or are they thinking or I guess they're approaching it by saying well now my uh, agency is going to have more time to focus on producing better work that's what saying, clients want you're doing less hours we need to change your fees. <laughs> no, that's a, look, clients are clients want us to use the resource that we have working on their business in a way that's going to deliver the best outcomes for them, the best thinking, the most creativity, the best ability to form partnerships, the greatest insight, the most interpretation. That's what clients want. I've never had a client say, "I want you to do more data input." But I've certainly had clients say, I want you to, to lean into creativity. I want you to lean into that thoughtfulness. Yeah. I want to understand the insights. So this is, this is absolute um, positivity from, from clients' perspective because it's going to allow them to have a much more meaningful conversation and outputs from all of the team members that, that are working on their business. Well, Anathea, so nice to see you and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. And that's it for another week on the Mombrella cast. You can catch uh, all of our content online on the website and make sure to subscribe to this podcast, whatever feed or platform you're listening to us on. Emma, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Kalila, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to Anathea and Senator Hanson-Young for joining us. See you next week. <laughs>